testing will will be a thrill. Grandpa and chill, grandson and friends. Grandpa and chill in full effect. We talk about it all, yeah, put it all on the set with that pet craze too. We chillin' with Rosie, country rules, stay tuned, yeah, listen closely. Cause this the millennials and the silent generation coming together, discussion in rotation. This is Grandpa and Chill. Which, which tell them which exotic animals you had, Grandpa. Kim was just telling us about his uh, horse farm that he just got. Yeah, he talked about the. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you're first. Oh well, just that uh, the old person that lived there. I did have a question about that. Like, yeah. how do they move all those animals, and where do they move them to? Did she move to like a a bigger place for them? <laughs> So here's the deal. As I was telling the guys, Grandpa, uh, I just moved into a horse ranch um, about uh, June 1st. Uh, I've lived in apartments and homes my entire life, and my two youngest daughters are horse people. And we've boarded horses for 10 years. But suddenly the wife decided that we were going to uh, get us a horse ranch and, and do it ourselves. But the lady we bought our property from was an animal rescuer and she used to have Shet she had too many Shetland ponies. She had pot bellied pigs here on the property. Uh, she had two horses and she carried around a little koala, six month old koala. Um, wait a minute. I think it's a wallaby. I'm saying it wrong. It was a wallaby, not a koala. It's a wallaby. I'm sorry. And uh, so she had gotten that from Florida about uh, seven or eight months ago. Uh, so now she, she sold us this property and they're now building a much bigger animal rescue. She is uh, a serious okay. animal rescuer. She's uh, good for her. And uh, I, I want, I think it's wonderful. And she carried this little wallaby around in this case in front of her, this little wraparound thing. And then, you know, <laughs> it, the, we just, she called us a couple of weeks ago and she said, listen, um, I've, I've ordered some nipples <laughs> for, for my bottle for the the baby because the the, the wallaby is going to have a baby so i had to order some nipples so she ordered some nipples and they she was having them sent here because they didn't have to do it in australia and so uh i we had to kind of wait for the nipples to arrive and we just thought that was fine so she can now feed her little baby wallaby grandpa you put us all inside of a water tank I'm having a problem right now. I, I know. I'm, I'm trying to. Still terrible. It is? No. It's terrible? And Grandpa, um, Kim has had a very illustrious radio career. Doing what? <laughs> <laughs> Prove it. That was good. I mean, I mean, do you, do, you, do you build radios or what do you do? No, 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 no. When I was oh. uh, in, when I was seventeen years old, my dad. Uh, see, I, I live in Colorado, the very small town called Canyon City, Colorado. It's the home of the Colorado State Penitentiary, and I grew up eleven blocks away from the Colorado State Penitentiary. In this little town, Canyon City, there's only one radio station. And my dad worked there. And when I was 17 years old, he came home one day and he said that the boss wanted me to come and babysit for him. And I thought that he meant babysit his kids. 
But because that's how I made my money in high school is I babysat my parents' friends' kids. But when I got to the radio station, uh, he, he wanted me to babysit the God show on Sunday morning. What that meant was all the services in town were recorded at all the churches. And on Sunday morning, they would play them back. And so you'd hear a week old service and, and it was the God show and nobody wanted to do that show. And so I got started doing that. And, you know, little punk kid in the 1970s, it was 1972. As soon as I heard my voice on the radio, I thought, hey, I could be a DJ. So I uh, spent the next. Now, did you did you engineer it yourself or or uh, have somebody else doing that? In those days, now by the, by the you're talking about the union uh, offices. There were still union offices in the major markets in America, where the DJ would just sit there and then would be an engineer engineering everything. Well, those days were gone in the late '60s, early '70s, and I engineered my whole show. Everything was done by me. I pushed all the buttons. Had to get the next record ready. Um, had to figure out what I was supposed to say. Get the next promo ready. Get the next song ready. And it was a constant motion for four hours. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's how I got started and spent the next 33 years. And I went to Knoxville. I was in San Antonio, Washington, D.C., uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And I spent 25 of 33 years in Miami, Florida. So that was my big radio career. But it was. And, and what kind of genre was your show about? Top 40, man. I'm a top 40 DJ. And oh, so you're in music. Okay, yes, great. Sir, top 40, wow. top 40 music. Now, you got to remember, guys. Um, Top 40 is is current music, but you've got to remember mm-hmm. that from 1972 to 2005, when I was, this is my stretch of my career, the genres of, of music for 18 to 34-year-old people, and that's what Top 40 music really, that's what Top 40 radio mm-hmm. is basically designed for, 18 to 34-year-olds. But if you think about the time span, there was a few variations of music that went through those days. When I first started, I was still playing the Beatles. I was playing, you know, uh, Marvin Gaye, early Marvin Gaye, the Supremes. And then it went to Casey and the Sunshine Band. And by the time I got finished in 2005, I was, you know, playing Puff Daddy Records, Tupac and, uh, and you know, all the hoodlums. So, Any Gladys Knight? I did. Well, as a matter of fact, Gladys Knight was one of the first things I played in 1973 on uh, Top 40 radio station in my college town, when the town I went to college in. That was when Midnight Train to Georgia was out. So <laughs> big, fan of, big fan of Gladys Knight. Um, so, but the radio career was, it was fun. But, you know, um, I got out of it because I got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, Grandpa. I mean, it was, uh, I, w- I was having exacerbations of MS my entire life. I just didn't know what it was. I was in San Antonio working on the radio there, and I thought I got stung by uh, killer bees. Um, oh, wow. And, you know, and I was in Washington, D.C., and I thought I'd been hit by fire ants. Uh, you know, so, but these were things. What would happen is, you know, my vision would start to fail. Uh, my legs would begin to seize and my toes would curl up. And, but I just thought I was sick. I just thought I had been stung by a bee or something because it came and it went away. But, uh, you know, around 2004, the, the things started happening and they didn't stop. So. Wow. forced me out of the career that I've loved my whole life. But then I became a writer. So that's kind of, you know, what we're all here, I guess, to talk about today, all these crazy things that happen. Yeah, I was going to comment on your uh, your podcast guest uh, page. I was reading it and was like, 
this guy's a good writer. Now, you said something about cows, and speaking of the sound engineer stuff, it was like, oh, you probably had an ear for stuff, too. Um, Because it was like, uh, in the very beginning, you were talking about the the church show, you could hear cows and the whatever, whatever. I thought that was pretty good writing. I was like, ah, I'm all in the scene. Good, you know, so that's cool. Good, good job. Well, you know, it was uh, it was weird as a little kid uh, in first learning on this radio station, which back in those days, you know, turntables, you know, the size of turntables. But back mm-hmm. in those days, you know, the 70s, this radio station had been there for about 40 years. So the equipment was ancient. The turntables were like 16 inches wide. And uh, and and I'd be on the radio and you could hear the cows mooing in the open window back there. I'd be trying mm-hmm. to talk, you know, so it's hilarious. It was certainly so different. Were you actually, uh, so you were actually spinning vinyl? Oh, yes, sir. Vinyl from the very yeah, beginning. Not, fact, not CDs or whatever. No, no, no. In Whoa. fact, Easter, Easter 1972, actually, yeah, 1972, my boss wanted me to play the, the 78 version of Peter Cottontail. So this, my boss walks into my little studio and says, here, put this on the radio. So I put it on this big turntable, got it all queued up. And here is an original version of Peter Cottontail. So I played it and I played nicely and everything. But in those days, the way the studio was set up, you would take the record off, put it in its jacket and sit it next to you so you could get the next song ready. Okay, you grab the next song and then you start getting the next song. So I put it down on the ground and I rolled my chair back and I rolled right over it. And was, uh, <laughs> the boss, there were, I got fired for a variety of reasons for my first radio job, and that was just one of them. So, but it was wow. a '78. We played the thick '78 records when I first got. Wow. Yeah. Do you have your own collection of records now, or well, <clears throat> vinyls, or whatever, yeah. uh, or CDs, or whatever? As a as a radio guy, uh, needless to say, every radio station was full of free prizes. Um, and the record companies, when you put a record on that the record company was promoting, they would send you boxes and boxes of freebies. Oh, wow. So part of the deal as a radio DJ for my entire career, I got to walk in the music office and just pick out what I wanted and just brand new copies of everything. And, and wow. But what happens in a case like that after 30-some years, guys, is I had, you know, what we consider to be music radio station libraries in my own home. I could have had a radio station. I had enough music to have my own radio station and in my own home. And that becomes very expensive when you're moving across the country. Uh, mm-hmm. Those boxes are heavy. And uh, so there came a point to where there was a storage place in Pueblo, Colorado, that got a huge collection of vinyl that went from the 1970s all the way to the middle of the 90s. Wow. I just left it in there because I was moving again. I just gotten married. My wife and I were starting a new life and, and I had become the boss by now. Okay. Now I'm the boss. And the last thing I want to do is deal with, with music and albums and stuff. I was, and we were into CDs by then. So uh, it wasn't, I, I just, I think I'm, I gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars of, because you know, they would, when, when the record company guys would come, they'd want to impress the DJs. So they give us special copies like the Grand Funk Railroad album, uh, We're an American Band was yellow. And uh, wow. so I had the, the Bobby Caldwell, what you won't do for love. Uh, I can't. All right. You're breaking my heart. I can't. I'm so heartbroken. 
<laughs> oh my his, gosh. His album was, was in heart shape. It was red and it was heart shaped. And that was Bobby Caldwell's song album. So And you left that somewhere in some in some storage place. Storage oh my god. Pueblo, Colorado. And and I, either the owner got pissed off and threw it all away, or he said, Hey, wait a minute, I got something here. Because it was, I'm telling you, it was there were classic versions of stuff you couldn't get anywhere else. Did you try and go back and find the stuff? No, you know what, man? Um, I'm a, a part of what part of what Top Forty Radio does is it keeps you in this 18 to 34 year old focus. And so I've never been nostalgic. I've never I didn't wow. like the Happy Days show. When Happy Days came on, I didn't like it because first of all, it screwed with my radio show because at seven o'clock every Tuesday night, my radio my I was on Y100 in Miami, one of the biggest top 40 radio stations in America at the time. The phones would fire like crazy. They had 20 phone lines. They'd be like this. And then all of a sudden, Happy Days would come on and the lights would stop flashing because everybody went to go watch Happy Days. So I hated that, but I've never been a nostalgic person. So having all these records from the old days never mattered to me. I'm I'm in the focus of 18 to 34-year-old life. I still feel like I'm no older than 45, 50 years old. And part of the science behind that is always having a kid in the house. Uh, I've had children in my home since 1989. And the good thing about that was my kids would keep me updated on all the current songs. I knew current trends because my daughters would come home and say, oh, here's the new song in Nevada. In fact, one time, if you guys get tired of me talking, just tell me, shut up, because I'll just keep talking. But That's what you're here for. Okay, well, good. Thanks. Well, my daughter was a big fan of SpongeBob SquarePants in the very beginning. And because she was what? I don't know, more than two, four or five years old. So I'd sit there and watch this TV show with her, this cartoon SpongeBob SquarePants. So I'm now the program director of Power 96. I'm running this, the biggest, in fact, it had the largest cumulative audience in the Southeast United States. It's a top 40 station in Miami. It was absolutely famous. So I would send my disc jockeys out all the time. They'd be at high school uh, pep rallies. They'd be at car o- o- openings, uh, at the grocery stores that were opening, uh, at the malls, just walking through the malls. I was very much a promoter. That's how we was, were always top of mind to the market because we were always in their face. Well, one day I decided that I was going to follow them to a pep rally, a high school pep rally. And when we were sitting there, the school is like packed full And I told my guys, I said, listen, man, there's this new cartoon out there. I want you to go out there and I just want you to say on the microphone, who lives in a pineapple under the sea? That's all I want you to say. And you're going to hear this thing. They're going to come screaming back to you. And they were all like, what? No. My my guys always looked at me like I was the old man. What do you know? Because I I mean, (laughs) by now I'm almost 50 years old playing, you know, Tupac. (laughs) <laughs> and all my guys are 20 and, and, and 25 years old. They're the hottest mixers in town. And so they didn't want to do it. So I went out in the middle of the, of the thing and I grabbed the microphone. Here comes the old guy in the middle of the high school gym and it's packed. And I just say, who lives in a pineapple under the sea? And they all yelled, SpongeBob SquarePants. And I looked over at my guys and they were like, whoa. But the only reason I knew that was because my kids kept me in the format. They kept me in 18 to 34. And so I was I always felt that as an advantage. As a matter of fact, I still have an 18 year old. She lives in the frog. So there's still kids in my house. I don't. I'm did you did you play the theme song after you prompted them? 
did we play the theme song? Or did you did you just get them to say the name and then leave them hanging? Well, I no, they that's I should have done that, but that's all I needed to hear because oh, from yeah. then on, you know, the pep rally started and everything went on. But gotcha. it was just a point that that the, because my children have always mm. kept me in the groove, I've it's always been an advantage for me. And uh, it's that's running a radio station, you need to be in the groove 18 to 34. And I cheated by having kids too many. Did, right. did you did you feel that as well, grandpa, with kids and grandkids? Yeah, I've often thought that, you know, regardless of what business you're in, it could be clothing or, or music or whatever, you know, if you want to, if you want to know what's really going on, you have to, you know, be in touch with young people. But I guess, Kim, you probably did similar to Casey Kasem. Yes, sir. That was me. Um, I, I, mm-hmm. we, I did many countdown pro. In fact, in Baltimore, uh, every radio station, you know, Casey Kasem was basically designed for an oldies radio station. But when you get to current music, you have countdowns. And so I hosted a couple of those countdowns on the radio stations that I was on. So and, you know, you get a staff of people that bring you everything. And in reality, all you do is read the copy. <laughs> and and what you would what I would do is I would go in and record the copy, everything that they printed for me. And then they would have an engineer come in and engineer the show itself. Very wow. much like the very much like the Casey Kasem stuff. You mentioned that you worked in, did you say Miami? Yes, sir. 25 years. Were you, did you have any familiarity at all with, let's say, the Palm Beach area, Palm Beach County? Well, our our radio stations all covered Miami, uh, actually Dade, Broward, and West Palm. So we we covered Palm Beach. The reason I ask you, what years were you in that area? 1970. Six to 2005. I was in and out. Really? Yeah. From that Did you ever hear of a club called uh, Spencer Woods Tiffany's? It was in West Palm. <laughs> yeah. I've heard the club. Yes. I never went there, but I know. Oh, I know he was phenomenal, this guy. Yeah. He was a phenomenal keyboard guy. But uh, I spoke to him years later, and he sounded like he was disgusted with his life. But uh, I don't know. But well, he was. Club so life, trust me, uh, owning a club, you've got to have a. There's a certain mindset there to to own a club and be dependent on on having music and the right people that's going to cause the audience to come and stay. I mean, I you know, DJs sometimes can really suck and and that can happen. You can have a DJ at a club and kill it. And so uh, it's it's not easy doing that and spending your life doing that, you know, would be very, very difficult. But now you're now you're your main occupation is writing you're not uh i write now yes sir um actually horse ranching (laughs) my new my new hobby is horse ranching and i'm a writer now i've now written three books do you like a political fiction or something well i i wrote my the memoir which you know as i said covers the career and and what's interesting uh, okay the memoir and and i do write political fiction um Uh, something happened in America in 1987 that I just, I am confident. Uh, Grandpa will probably remember, but I know you guys don't know what happened. But in 1987, uh, President Reagan vetoed the Fairness in Broadcasting Act. Inside that act was the Fairness Doctrine. And that doctrine commanded that if some, if, if someone put something that was a lie or misinformation on the radio, you had the right to go to that broadcast facility and demand equal time. 
to shoot down the lie, to call the liar out as a lie. And in 1987, President Reagan said two things. He, he told America that it was antagonistic to the rights given in the, in the First Amendment, the right of free speech. But what was also going on in the background was the radio stations and TV stations in America that were having to deal with equal time were complaining that the equal time they were giving was free and it was costing the bottom line. So those two things were happening in 1987. The, the broadcasting community was getting to Ronald Reagan and saying, listen, this is affecting our bottom line. And he said, well, then I'm going to get rid of the fairness doctrine. And I will say that it's because it's antagonistic to the rights given in the First Amendment. But when you take away the fairness doctrine, what you do is you take away my right to call a lie out as a lie, to call a liar out as a liar, to call disinformation out as disinformation. So what he really did was he took away my right. Yeah, it's opposite. So so but and I will believe that Ronald Reagan had no clue what he was doing. Because you got to remember, Ronald Reagan was losing it for a long time, and eventually he he suffered. So I don't think he thought about the fact that you could get people on broadcast stations in America who would lie, who would who would spread disinformation, and and do it rapidly every day and not even care, uh, and then you would end up with the division you have we have in America today. Because what people don't like are liars. What people want is truth and facts. And you can find the truth and the facts. Um, so I, I, that's what I write about. And it just so happens that this affected my father. And that's where the story came from. Because mm-hmm. um, it affected my job, my, my father's enjoyment of his radio station that he worked on. So. Well, Reagan really was the beginning of the end of uh, of what's fair. The middle Whatever. class, um, yeah. I believe. Mm. He, um, he, he was the beginning of what's going on right now. Well, yeah. And, you know, he that was the beginning of where corporate corporations were going to take over America. And um, and that's what's happened. And and it's you could have predicted it. You heard people saying it was going to happen in the 1980s when he was doing all this. Uh, they were predicting we were going to end up here. Uh, so this is not a surprise. But the truth is, it's simple legislation. And, you know, when I talk about my books to, to people, like, you know, I'm, I'm a Mercedes-Benz owner, right? I'm sorry, I'm very proud of my really nice car. And I go to the dealership, and I've got all these big, tall, white guys who are not in my political party, but kind of guys I can talk to. And we debate things. And when my book came out, I made sure they had a copy. And what they all said to me was, man, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to depend on truth in America. I mean, we we would like the fairness doctrine to come back. The citizens want it to come back because we believe you should know the truth. But the truth is, there's a party who has benefited from this since 1987. And every time bringing back the fairness doctrine comes up in Washington, D.C., it gets poo-pooed and it gets stopped. But if you went long enough with enough young people, because I believe the young people are going to have to fix this country. If you went long enough with enough young people uh, understanding that they could get truth back, make it legislation and, and, and make it a law again, you could eliminate all of this. Now, let me say this. We have cable, you have satellite, uh, 
you have a variety, you have your phone, a variety of different things you couldn't control. The fairness doctrine could not control your phone data, couldn't control Instagram, couldn't control all those TikTok, it couldn't control that. But the fairness doctrine could control radio and TV stations and demand that they have fair and balanced broadcasting. The truth, the fairness doctrine, because those TV and radio stations, regardless of where they come from, have to come out of a transmitter. And that transmitter is legally responsible to the FCC. So if the FCC said, we are now going to bring back the fairness doctrine for American broadcast, television, and radio, you could do it because there are transmitters. They control the transmitters. So at least that way, America would have a safe haven to go to for honest debate. You can lie all you want, but for the next 30 minutes, I get to tell you my side. That's all. And I think America would appreciate that. Especially well, now. the problem is that uh, money and power uh, control yeah. everything pretty much, and uh, it's very hard to overcome to, to overcome that. You know, the 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 politics and and who is going to make the laws and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, idealistically, yes, you'd like to be able to do that. If you had uh, two eight-year terms of Democrats. Theoretically, over that 16-year period, you could bring it back if you had enough people, Democrats, who want it. Because Democrats always want to bring it back. But we only get, you know, you get two terms of Barack and then it stops. Well, it's interesting in this midterm election, which we just had, they thought that the main issue would be the economy, uh, inflation, and and, and, and crime. And what they found out is that one of the, well, one of the issues, main issue was abortion. Yes. But the other one was people are afraid of losing democracy. Yeah. And, uh, that, that's a main concern right now. Other Republicans. That's what the pundits had been saying. People with money. Inflation was <laughs> yeah. We need the Fair Use Act to be like, it's not inflation. <laughs> Yeah. Give me my 30 minutes. It's corporate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're afraid of democracy. They're afraid we're, that democracy is taking a beating. And it's it's mm-hmm. concerning now because if the House is taken over by the Republicans, can't they, in theory, just stop all the January 6th hearings? I guess. Uh, uh, Kim, in today's but, world, which uh, does... Which do you think has more influence, the the Internet or or radio and TV? It's the Internet. My daughter never listens to the radio or TV. Um, we had to give her a TV <laughs> just so she could see some crazy show, but it's not even a network show, so it's it's an app that she wanted to see. Kids don't look at that anymore. It's all in here. It's all in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but... You know, I have to have faith in the young people of America. I have to have faith. My daughter and her friends and my other children all believe what I believe. So we can't be by ourselves. There's got to be a strong enough coalition of young people out there in America, but you've got to be able to get them involved. And that is difficult, getting them involved. Because, you know, in theory, they can control the They can control every election. Anybody under 30, if you voted, they would control the election. What? We're in a water, in tank, a water again. tank again. Did you unplug Did something, you Grandpa? Something, Grandpa? I, that's what I'm wondering. I, I, it's driving me crazy. 
a work obligation um i'm so grateful for your time kim i will leave you with uh our very special hosts now that he's all set up and uh let you guys roll thank you okay man take care brandon bye bye well kim it sounds like you've had a very interesting career like you're having one well i it was a great Broadcasting was fun. It was great. It was the thing my dad got me started in. But like I said, I was having these exacerbations of multiple sclerosis my whole life. And in 2004, they went from just temporary problems to continuous problems. And uh, just so happens I was home with my mom, 2004, uh, with my mom, I mean, my wife and my kids. And it was when that tsunami happened, the first time we saw the tsunami and whatever that was, and it, and you could see it on TV, the whole country was wiped out. Well, my mom, during that tsunami, says to me, there's something wrong with your face. There's something wrong with you. Oh, wow. And uh, all that harassment of there's something wrong with you made my wife, when we got back to Miami, that's when I actually got in the doctor, and that's when the, the diagnosis and the, the test began. Uh, and the test went about a month and a half. And I was diagnosed with MS, and um, that's when everything changed. Wow. So when did you move up to Colorado again? So that was 2005 when we retired. So what's yeah. 2005 to, to now? Where, where were you okay, at? Well, um, first of all, I grew up in Canyon City, my hometown, in where the state mm -hmm. penitentiary is, okay? Um, mm -hmm. But when I got diagnosed, the only thing I could think to do was go home. Um, because I didn't know what was going on. I was losing control of my legs, my bladder. Uh, my hands weren't working correctly. I was losing vision in my eye. The only thing I could think to do for this was just to go home. Uh, so I came back to Colorado. My mom is still there. Uh, she's passed since then, but she was there. I figured if I need some help, I could ask my high school buds who never left town and they would help me. And that they did. So I spent the 10 years from 2005 until 2015, kind of figuring out how to have multiple sclerosis. Wow. And, and you know, you got to remember the psychology of it, Finnis. I mean, you know, I was kid. I was a fairly famous guy. First of all, I was a DJ in Miami right. and D.C. And, and in Baltimore, a pretty famous DJ. And when I became the program director of Power 96 in Miami, it's like little Hollywood. So, right. I mean, my, being Kid Curry on Power 96, running Power 96 – uh, it was a big deal. Everybody wanted to be close to Kid Curry. But when I got diagnosed and I went from a cane to crutches to a wheelchair over that five or six year period, nobody wanted to be close to me. I mean, people wow. move away from the guy with the crutches. They move away from the guy in the wheelchair. So there was a real psychological thing that went on with me for a long, long time. Because I didn't like it. I was angry. What the hell are you people doing? I, it's me. I'm, you know, I'm Kid Curry for Christ's sake, but nobody right. wanted to talk to me. Nobody even cared. And it's funny that, and I don't blame them, the people that I was working. When I left my office, I basically just disappeared. And, but no one called me. No one checked on me. And I don't blame them because I wanted them to go on anyway. That's why I left the station, because I didn't want the station to be dragged down by my physical condition distracting me from running the radio station. So I, I wanted to get out of there and I wanted people to move on with their lives, but it did affect mm. me. It did affect yeah. Me. I mean, you know, I, I, I can see, I mean, I can understand that. Like, you don't want people to, you know, move on, but at the same time, you check on me. I got MS, you know, but, um, but, uh, 
they eventually yeah. all did. They eventually <laughs> all did. When the, when the, mem, when the memoir came out and I threw all their crap out in front of them, <laughs> suddenly everybody had to go, hey, how you doing? Because oh, I said it okay. before. Nobody's calling me. So uh, now everybody's okay. I've been in touch. That's hilarious. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, that that is a lot uh, to go from, you know, a big fish uh, to now you're a big fish in a small pond, but with MS, um, not, I mean, not to keep harping on that, but it does mean something, right? Because that's, you know, you went through a lot for it. Um, you went through a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, it does sound like quite a humbling experience, but you seem, you seem quite light. Well, from- you know, then it, it, here's what happened then, you know, <laughs> Then I realized, well, first of all, it's expensive to, to, to be in a wheelchair. First of all, my insurance company gives me one wheelchair. It's the motorized wheelchair that I use in my house. But if I want to leave my house, I've got to be able to get the wheelchair out of my house. And then I've got to be able to get that wheelchair into a vehicle that can transport my, me in the wheelchair somewhere. Now, mm-hmm. it's either that or you go out and you buy your own wheelchair, a, a manual wheelchair. And I use the manual wheelchair that I just throw in the trunk of the car and I crawl along the side of the car because I can drive with hand controls. My wife makes sure that I have everything I need to be a normal guy. So, you know, about five or six years into my MS, we decided that it was time for me to learn how to drive with hand controls. So I do that. And uh, so, you know, I've I've learned to, to deal with it, but the cost of all these things is astronomical. Uh, but my biggest complaint is I get no help from the government. I get no help. And it's not my fault that I've got MS. I just think mm-hmm. it's ridiculous in this particular country. Uh, it's supposed to be wealthy as we are to have the worst health care. And uh, it's not fair. And the tax breaks were taken away by a political party. And that, I think, is absolutely unjust, which is why I'm not necessarily a member of that party. But anyway, so then, you know, Finnis, as I as I had to deal with the mental thing of, of people not really wanting to be close to me, I finally realized after about, like I said, 10 years, uh, I learned how to have MS. In about year nine, um, things changed for me. Uh, there was a guy who had a, a major trade magazine. You've heard of Billboard magazine. Well, that's the mm-hmm. magazine the country knows about that talks about music. There's another magazine that was out there. It was called the Street Information Network. And the Street Information Network was specifically for radio programmers and record promoters. And where you see Mariah Carey and all the big hits on, on the Billboard charts, the Street Information Network magazine was made to bring up the, the up and comers, the guys who couldn't get into Universal Studios to talk, I mean, Universal Records to talk to them. This record, this magazine was helped to bring along the nobodies, but it was a very mm. famous magazine. And the guy who ran that magazine was named Vince Pellegrino. And Vince had an April 1st birthday and I have an April 20 birthday. I'm a 420 baby. So oh. every year after I, after I left the, the radio station, we would exchange birthday greetings. He's the only guy after I left the business, he wished me happy birthday. I wish him happy birthday. But this magazine was a big, big deal. And you've heard about, you know, Mariah and all those guys getting Grammys. Well, they wouldn't get those Grammys if it wasn't for the record promoters getting those songs on radio stations in America. So Vince was in charge of all of that. Uh, 
in about, I don't know, eight years after I got diagnosed, it would have been 13 or 14. He called me one day and he said, listen, um, I need you to come to to New York City. Uh, every year he had a big convention, had everybody in town. They'd bring in new artists and it was a big deal. He always had it at B.B. King's Blues Club. And it was a big extravaganza and everybody would gather there. And he flew me out and my wife and my kids out to New York because he wanted to give me a lifetime achievement award. He thought that I left the business. I'd had all this success and I disappeared because of my MS. He wanted to bring me and say, hey, man, we appreciate what you did in Miami and all those other markets. Here's a lifetime achievement award. So I go out to New York. Uh, I'm at B.B. King's Club, and I finally get to see Vince for the first time in a long time. And he's dressed in this big coat with a hat on and a scarf. He looked over over warm. It was just, it was November, December, so it was cold, but he looked overdressed. Uh, this party is going on. Uh, he's giving out all these awards. He calls me up on stage. I see 30 years of my career in front of me. Uh, these guys are loving on me. And I started feeling this thing where I wanted to come back. I wanted to, to not be so depressed. I wanted to become, I wanted to become, so I wanted to be Kid Curry again, man. Yeah. Yeah. So what I realized at that point, and I put it in my mm -hmm. head that when I roll into a room, I'm, I'm, People used to say, oh, kid, hey, kid. But when I roll into a room in my wheelchair, I am the focus of attention. So what I do is I bring out my old kid curry attitude and my old kid curryisms, And I talk. I'm the first one to talk in the room. I'm the nicest guy out there. I'll have, I don't have any problem having someone hold the door for me. And so mm -hmm. I've changed that kid curry's walking in the room to, hey, there's the wow. guy in the wheelchair. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I fixed that. And it was because my wife said to me, You've got to stop being so mad about being in that wheelchair. And when she said that to me, I finally started figuring these things out. So it was Vince bringing me back into New York City, seeing all my 30-year friends, uh, feeling juiced again, which made me want to do something again, which put me into writing. I wanted to write the story. I thought, well, geez, wow. let me write this story about my career, about the multiple sclerosis. Let me write this story about this party that my friend brought me to. And, mm -hmm. and, and let me talk about how expensive it is to be disabled in America. And th so I got out of that party and I went home and I thought, I'm going to write my memoir. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sorry, that just gave off really hot. I mean, it, it's the, that's the hero's journey, right? That's what that's what just happened. I mean, that's that's, your, that's what happened basically in your life from back seventeen year old to reaching the the thing, you know, reaching the pinnacle two thousand five, and then falling down the grace, and then being completely humble, even further so when someone goes, stop complaining, you you know, person in a wheelchair, which is funny. Um, <laughs> and then you just, and then it's, and then it's right. okay, hilarious. Um, and then there's the rise again. That's great. That's great. No wonder you wrote a memoir. That's good. Yeah. Kudos. Well, and then once I got finished, I wanted to keep writing, which is why I wrote mm -hmm. those fiction books and uh, wrote my story about Bonnie's Law and the the Fairness Doctrine. I'm a big fan of the Fairness Doctrine. So, and the books have done well. In fact, I mean, geez, you know, I don't. What you learn after you've written something. Well, first of all, okay, my my memoir, Come Get Me, Mother, I'm Through, ended up at number eleven on the Amazon book list. Howard Stern was number one in the broadcasting side. I was number 11. Well, what I realized is you don't ever really write for profit. 
because this is not a profitable business. You write because you want to write. Uh, and the sales come if they come. If they don't, they don't. Uh, because there is so much distraction in the world. I really write now just to get something out. But my last book, Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness, is a story about a little girl who understands what President Reagan did and decides that she is going to bring back the fairness doctrine. But she does this over the span of her, from two years old till she's in her 30s. And she finally realizes all this is going on. And then Bonnie, at the end of the book, uh, decides that she's going to run for president to bring back the fairness doctrine. And that book actually became an Amazon number one bestseller. Wow. It was released for some reason. And you know, I was pretty impressed with that. Now, uh, I did get a my largest uh, check from the publisher so far, although it really wasn't that much. But it's the largest check I ever got. So you don't really write for 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 profit. You write because you want to, and that's why I'm doing it. I just have a good time now because I like making up stories. You know, I I didn't realize. You know, and then you read Stephen King and you read. Um, oh man. What's that guy's name? Uh, okay. Well, anyway, all those other. Oh, well, Doctor Seuss. Yeah, oh. Doctor Seuss. Hey. You read these things and you close. figure out how did they do this. Where did that come from? And mm -hmm. so it, it puts me in a place to where I come up to my office up here, sometimes three and four o'clock in the morning, and um, I have no problem admitting that I will vape. Uh, you know, I, I, I vaporize flour, and I get in my mood and I just start writing. And uh, you know, I'm I'm. I have a great time doing it, and it's all I do now. So uh, add that and run my ranch. So I kind of have two distractions, my ranch and my writing. So I record music because I enjoy doing it. More you for, do? For the enjoyment than for any money. For, you know, peculiar. There you Incidentally, go. My, my nephew has MS, and I hadn't seen him for several years, and he has a tough time. He can only walk uh, really a few steps with a cane now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he's a is he on guy. medication? I'm sure he is. His parents are well to do, and okay. I'm sure they give him everything that they can. You know. Good. And and how long has he been diagnosed? Well, he was born with a congenital heart defect. I don't know that that had anything to do with his MS, but, um, and quite frankly, I don't know, but I think it's been several years. Yeah. I had not really, my, my sister and her family live out on the West coast and I'm on the East coast. So I hadn't really seen him for several years, but he came into Philadelphia and we went to dinner together. And, um, and I didn't, I really didn't realize walked with a cane, a very, very short distance, I'd say. You know, maybe maybe twenty yards. That's all. I got diagnosed when I got diagnosed. I was in my corporate office over in Naples, Florida, which is three hours away across Alligator Alley from Miami. And I was in the corporate office, and my doctor called on my phone. I picked it up and went to another room, and she says, uh, "I need to speak to you on Monday to talk to you about the next part of your life because I'm going to oh. diagnose you with multiple sclerosis." And that threw me off. Wait a minute. Talk about the next part of my life. What are you talking about? And so I went into the corporate office meeting with all the honchos and I packed up my briefcase and I said, see you guys. I've just been diagnosed with MS. By the way, don't wow. do that. By the way, don't do that. Why not? <laughs> the corporate office probably shouldn't have known. 
Okay. I, I should have, I should have held on to that because eventually they were trying to get me out. But anyway, a whole nother story. I see. I see. So on, on the drive back to Miami, cause like I said, I, I didn't even know what multiple sclerosis was. Uh, so I'm driving back to Miami for that three hours across Alligator Alley and I'm on the phone with my wife and my wife is doing the 2005 version of Google. And she's uh, telling me that this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then she said, you could die from this. Multiple sclerosis kills. And so by the time I got home after that three-hour trip, you know, I was I, at that point, I think I was ready to retire. I'm done because I don't know what's going to happen. I've got work to do. I've got to figure out what's going on. I've got to get on medication. I'm going to try to fight for my life here. So uh, that's really then on that Monday the following Monday, I walked in and I told my boss, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to go. And they did everything they could to keep me for a while. Uh, but then eventually I thought that there was something going on in the background. But you have to really watch what you tell your employer. Yeah, but not, not to lessen anything that you're saying, but none of us know what's going to be tomorrow. No, you're right. You're right. You make a really good point about... Um, you know, talking about the importance of healthcare and and mm -hmm. finding that spot, finding that spot or that mentality where you're comfortable with having like a chronic illness like MS, especially because we're dealing with so much long COVID now, like all over the world, and we still don't know the full effects of long COVID and accepting that, you know, your life is your life and the trajectory of your life is not going to be the same as you thought it was for really, you know, outside of, you know, you sabotaging yourself. There was no reason why you couldn't continue on that trajectory. We're now basically an act of God has mm -hmm. propelled you in a different direction and having to accept that and grow with that is, you know, going to be really important for a lot of people. And there's a thing called dystonia. I think that's how you pronounce it. <clears throat> it affected my voice. And so being in radio, I mean, you know, my voice was going. Oh, wow. And it's no, it's about 20% of where it was. Okay. So wow. uh, my whole life changed. Everything had to change. And uh, it was, it was, it was a, a path that I, Tough. like I said, I wanted to write about it. So I did. So. Well, maybe, maybe it was the creator's way of, turning you into a writer i look at all situations as something to grow from uh i know it took me a while to come out of this but you know, it was really, i really didn't talk about this i mean the reason that that i'm here today the reason that that even i could even go to new york city for that party was right around year seven or year eight my when I first got diagnosed, there were only five MS drugs. So you go into eight years later, now there's eight drugs. And so my doctor said that we were making no progress. I was taking, I was actually doing experimental MS drugs. I was taking solumetrol treatments three or four times uh, in one year. Uh, and then I did that year after year. And the doctor said, it's time to change the medicine. Let's put you on something new. And then my doctor, uh, who is an MS genius, wanted me to begin taking large doses of vitamin D. I mean, massive. I was taking 30,000 IUs of vitamin D every day. Now, wow. humans humans don't collect vitamin D very well. 
Our bodies are designed to be out in the sunshine. That's how you get your vitamin D. Well, we're not in the sunshine that much anymore, so nobody really collects vitamin D. But MS patients, for some reason, the vitamin D numbers are even lower. So my doctor believes that if you take this large doses of vitamin D and he believed that if we change your medicine and do the vitamin D, we're going to be able to stop this. And it's funny because we changed the medicine. And then he told me he wanted to take, he wanted me to take the vitamin. But because I was a DJ and I would put my mom on the radio all the time with me and my mother invariably would have a cold, sniffle, sniffle, make sure you take your vitamin C. It'll help you keep off that cold. So I said, okay, mom. She'd sniffle, sniffle. So I never believed in vitamins. So I changed the medicine. And the doctor kept calling, are you taking the vitamins? No, it's not going to matter. But my wife really got into it and insisted that I take the 30,000 I use. So for six months, nothing changed. I had new medicine, but my condition didn't change. But when I started mm -hmm. shoving down that vitamin D, suddenly I wasn't feeling that fingernail down the chalkboard. I wasn't having the brain fog I was always having. My condition basically leveled off. So for the last 10, 8 to 10 years, I've not wow. gotten any worse. I've not gotten any better. I'm, I am leveled. So I really feel that this, this thing that my doctor did with the vitamin D was the right thing to do. So, Kim, have you uh, used interferon? Uh, yes, I have. And that was part of some of the beginning treatments. When they were trying it's to very stop, very expensive. Oh yes, very expensive. But I believe yeah. it has very beneficial effects. Am I yes, sir. Recommend that? Well, I I might I'm going to pick up my doctor's book and do this because my doctor I want I want your in fact I will I will send you a copy of this if you want to, Grandpa. Optimal health with multiple sclerosis. He talks about the guide to integrating lifestyle, alternative, and conventional medicines. So. Hmm. My, my doctor even knows that I am a CBD user. He knows that I use THC to try to, in fact, there are studies everywhere right now that they're doing about uh, cannabis's effect on multiple sclerosis. Here's the situation. I can only take 80 milligrams of baclofen. Now, baclofen, my legs seize constantly. In fact, right now, if you could see me, my legs are sticking straight out. I'm sitting in this chair and they're sticking straight out. So the oh, baclofen... Baclofen stops that from happening, but I can only take 80 milligrams a day. So at one o'clock in the morning when my legs are seizing again, I roll over and I vape some flour of indica and I go right back to sleep and my legs stop seizing. So this is not happening just to me, but it's happening to MS patients around the world. So there is a connection. There are studies going on and uh, it's alternative. But, you know, when you're desperate, you'll do most anything to try to stop the mm -hmm. madness, you know? Mm -hmm. Tell me about payola. <laughs> hey, yes. Give me payola. <laughs> okay. Well, off the record, this doesn't really happen. No, no. On the record, it doesn't really happen off the record. Here's the truth. Um, it happens. It happened. It still happens. Um, it's been a, it's been an, an interesting thing to deal with as a program director of the number one radio station in Miami, Florida. 
Now, I was brought up by two program directors who made me, in my head, I was focused on playing the music for the people. And because I've been in Miami from 1976 as the youngest guy on the radio, then suddenly I was the oldest guy on, in charge of a top 40 station. You know, I knew what the heck was going on. Now, um, part of my MS and part of this time of day is I forget what I was saying. So what was that? Do you remember what we were talking? You asked me about payola. Okay. So, so it was, it, it was real important for me as a program director to keep the payola out. The guy, the guy who was on before me, I don't know if he took money. There was always, it was always a rumor, but I don't know if he did, but I know I wasn't going to. So I kept those guys away. But for instance, there's a very famous reggaeton artist out there. Uh, his manager wanted to have lunch with me one day and we drive up to the restaurant and he hands me a briefcase. He says, open this. And it was full of $10,000. He says, you can have this. Just play my guy's song. And I said, you know what, man? I'm the wrong guy to talk to. I, I, this is me. I don't do this. Okay. So you can, you could bring me a hundred thousand dollars and I'm not going to do it because I play music for the people. Not for that. Now, that was me. <laughs> Guarantee it happened. Um, in fact, there was a guy, very famous South Florida radio DJ. He was real famous in Chicago. In fact, he was supposed to be a supplier of fun and games for the Blues Brothers movie, if you know what I mean. And his name wow. is Don Cox. And Don Cox was on the radio in Miami. And at one point, Don Cox said he was going to write a book about it. Uh, and then Don Cox ended up out in the Everglades and, uh, it happened to, they beat him up, threw him out in the Everglades and he made it back to Miami to tell the story that he was not going to tell the story. So uh, it's out there. Everybody knows it's out there. Nobody wants to talk about it and they will come and find you if you decide you're going to talk about it. So, you know, um, interesting. Yeah. Well, you know who <laughs> sure. Jim Clark is from American Bandstand. Nick Clark's American Bandstand. I don't think that, I don't know. I don't know where those, those records came from. Yeah. He, uh, most people, I don't know if they know the story, but, and the reason I know is because my friend's parents were involved with American Bandstand. And what happened was they, on the show, they had a guy who, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. I can't remember right now, but, but he would got in trouble for, having sex with young women, uh, young girls, 13 years old. Oh, God. And uh, so they had to replace him, and they put Dick Clark in because he had this all-American, you know. Yeah. And he was involved in payola. He actually was uh, prohibited from being on the airwaves at all for 20 years uh, because of his issue with the payola. Yeah, once once they bust what, you're done. Yeah. What is payola? Pay for play, and the guy would. Oh, he, he wanted me to play his guy's song. And he was wanted me to pay. He was going to give me ten thousand dollars, and I could just walk home with it and just go home with ten thousand dollars. And if I wanted more, I could have asked for more. But that's what payola is. It's pay for play. Wow, I thought you guys were speaking Spanish, and I just was like, I don't know this word. <laughs> oh, no, but I didn't. Okay, but it is. I didn't know. Uh, hmm. And you can and you can tell the radio stations kind of that take payola because they play crappy songs. I'm about to say the music is trash. <laughs> oh yeah, because uh, you, you can. They're not playing songs for the audience. They're playing songs that they're getting paid for, and they suck, or they wouldn't have to pay for it. That's true. It's true. 
You probably can't say that because you're probably getting shot or something, saying something like that. Yeah, Kim, I know you mentioned that the that the records that you got were kind of special discs. Maybe they looked a little different or whatever. Was the quality of the of the recording any better of the, on on those vinyls than the regular vinyl that would be bought by a regular customer? Was it closer to the original master? I guess is what I mean. We always got primary cuts. Everything that radio stations get are the primary cuts. They're the ones that have to be the best because they got to go on the radio. So the oh, vinyl has to be now. Are they valuable? Oh my god! Oh yeah! Oh, I know. I can't believe it. I still can't believe it. I, I always wonder whatever happened to those records. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I I don't know. That's the most heartbreaking thing that I've. Not only that you said, I think that I've heard in a long time. I'm such a music head. I love music so much that I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I I, I don't like keeping a bunch of stuff. I get that part. But just to go to enough, just to be gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It hurts. yeah I, I, I often wonder about it because, you know, and some of those things, Bobby Caldwell actually spent a New Year's Eve at my house. Uh, so he was a personal friend. And after I realized what I had done, after, you know, years, years go by and I, cause I've got a stack of stuff that I kept, you know, I, I've got a record library that's pretty good. I pulled a bunch of stuff out that I wanted, a bunch of Beatles mm-hmm. stuff. So I've got some stuff. And one day I wanted, yeah. gee, did I keep that Bobby Caldwell record? And I didn't. And I was, so uh-huh. because it was, it was pretty, man. It was in a heart. And, but they didn't do that back then to have the, the, the Grand Funk Railroad album be yellow. I mean, we'd never seen a yellow vinyl before. We didn't know they yeah. could do that. So, but uh, all, sorry. You know, you know, it happens, you know. Somebody got on Facebook 20 years later and made all kinds of, or, or however they yep. sell these. You know. I just hope someone's on that bidding show with those, like those uh, storage bins and someone just spent very little and just got all that. That's all I can hope oh, for, I guess. Cool. That would be cool. The lucky son of a gun, yeah. If <laughs> you had those cuts from Sinatra or Ella or, you know, people like that, those almost like master cuts, they're worth a lot of money today. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, um, when I was in Miami, when I became the program director of Power 96, of course, started making a whole lot more money. Uh, so I went and I bought a home on the seventh, just off the seventh hole of Don Shula's golf course. Now, Finnis, um, mm-hmm. Don Shula, he was a famous football coach. Okay. Grandpa knows who he is. So I off the seventh hole of Don Shula's golf course. And the lady I bought this house from had 78 records. She had boxes full of 78s. So I just took them. She asked me if I wanted them and I took them. Uh, <laughs> I kept those. So I've got a whole bunch of old 78s, those thick, those thick records. So yeah. I still have some of those. Uh, okay. But I, you know, I've even gone on, I've, I've gone to check them out to see if they're worth any money and they're not. Yeah. They're not worth anything. So. And that's what it is. We just keep it for sentimental values. Sorry. Uh, what? Yes. I've got a what are you saying, Grandpa? 78 class, classicals that have never been played. And I tried to sell them and no one wants them. They have no. almost no value. And it's really difficult to find a needle that will play them these days. Pardon? So. What makes the needle Hold on to them. They'll be different? Worth, they'll be worth money someday. What makes the What kind of needle do you need? Well, the, the other... Okay, now vinyl degrades. Okay, mm-hmm. so when they printed these old 78s, 
they're not, eventually time, air gets to them and the grooves become damaged and you need a precise, very precise needle. They just don't make them okay. anymore. Um, mm. No, you just, you can't, I don't, I don't even know where you would find them. I'm sure someone somewhere along the line, somewhere in the world makes these needles, but they're very difficult to find. And remember now, um, you'll know this, Sierra. I mean, kids are buying vinyl again. So there are record mm -hmm. players out there. Right. My daughter, um, she plays vinyl all the time on her little record player. Now that's a, a very easily acquired needle. That needle will work on just about anything except for old, old classic vinyls, 78s and things. Yeah, I have the old but they I have see. needles out there actually. So that's why they, I see, I see. They're a harder material. Much harder, much thicker, much that harder. That explains a lot because I remember vinyl coming yeah. back and my dad is a big music person. So like he would, he talked about vinyl for years before vinyl came back and he would say, you know, and I'd ask him, okay, well, why aren't we all doing vinyl? And he said, you know, it's expensive, but like, that makes more sense what you're saying. Like as it's come back, you know, mm -hmm. they've made a version of it that's more affordable for the public, but you still oh, yeah. need to, yeah. the true experts will have to look for that expensive, precise needle. RPF got a real nice vinyl. one. I prefer vinyl. I, I mean, I it just sounds clearer to me. You know, all these compressed CDs have compressed sounds, and you hear so much more listening to vinyl than you do a CD. So the science has taken all the real good stuff out. I need to try that this mm -hmm. weekend. I've, I always hear about the difference, but I've never what? heard the difference. I want to like, yeah. I'm going to have to borrow his record player and like put in my headphones maybe. Yeah. Back in Indiana, I got one. I got a collection of vinyls, not here, but and my dad has a big collection too. But, but. Yeah. Big Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder fan. You said Marvin Gaye earlier. We have a lot of Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder records. Yeah, Is that my echo? It's a I little bit. <laughs> Okay, I, I was I stood under a uh, a heating lamp with Stevie Wonder. We're coming out of a Grammy party. We're coming out of uh, Clive Davis Clive Davis's uh, Grammy party, and I was waiting for my car. And Stevie Wonder walks up under this heat lamp with me, and I said, "Hello, Mister Wonder." Wow, he looked up and was like, "Inner visions." <laughs> oh, he's, he's a big. He's a much bigger guy because remember, he was little Stevie Wonder, Grandpa. You yeah. remember that. He was a very tiny little kid, but he grew up and put some weight on. <laughs> Who are we talking about? Stevie Wonder. Oh, right. Okay. I thought little we were Stevie about Wonder. Frankie Lyman. Uh, him, he's another one. Another one. He's... Did he get big? Yeah, he did. <laughs> I'm scared of talking now because my. Yes. Okay. It's my turn. Uh, I got stuff I've written down here. Let me see. Eight to 10 years. D. How much, how much was it for vitamin D? You were like, IU like 3000 or something. A thousand. And 30,000 international units of vitamin D a Damn. day. Now, that, a I know, <laughs> but mm. you know, it, it fixed me. I mean, I'll tell you, yeah. I was scared for 10 years. I thought I was going to die. I mean, I just kept getting worse and worse. And then there's that sudden feeling once again that, wait a minute, I'm not feeling like I was. It's not, you know, the fingernails down the chalkboard constantly. And I, it just went away. And uh, 
I started sleeping better. Uh, and my, my doctor, remember, multiple sclerosis is such that it, lesions appear on your brain, sores wow. appear on your brain. And depending on where these lesions land is the part of the body that is affected. My multiple sclerosis. So that's what that is? That's what? So yeah. Multiple, oh. Yeah, these little lesions appear. And if, you know, in my case, they appear in, in, in the part of my brain that runs my legs. About, a, I, about three quarters of my legs work uh, and the rest don't. It all depends on where these lesions land. Now, what's happened since I stopped, since my condition stopped getting worse, my doctor believes, and it's true because I'm living proof of it, my brain has started to rewire itself. What was bad for me is no longer. I mean, I, I used to have brain fog like crazy. It happens, but not like it used to. My voice was totally gone. I was gone. But it's back now, better than it was. So my doctor believes that, yes, you can have these lesions on your brain, but if you can stop them being damaged, your brain will eventually rewire itself. Now, my doctor, my MS doctor, always looks at my MRIs. And about four years ago, he took, uh, I, I, at that time, I was taking two MRIs a year. In the beginning of the year, he saw something on my brain he didn't like. Six months later, he saw something, another discoloration on my brain, and he gave the information, the MRIs, to the brain specialist at a Swedish hospital. And he said, this is an aneurysm and it's going to happen. So we better stop it right now. So they crazily put something up in my groin. They went all the way through to my brain. And he was, in fact, he is the person who has invented this new aneurysm prevention. Um, it's The drug is called Onyx. And what they do is they get right into where they see the the um, aneurysm could happen and they squirt this black onyx on it and it freezes that area and then your brain rewires itself around there. So the aneurysms, in fact, he I had two of them. Once he got in there, he realized I had two. So he put this onyx on both parts of them. Those mm. aneurysms were then halted at that point. And then for the weeks after that happened, you could see it in me physically, my brain rewiring itself. I'd be sitting there and suddenly this would happen with my hand and my arm would come up and it would just sit there. And I was, and I'm calling my doctor going, what's happening? What's happening? In fact, he was away in some other part of the country, um, some other part of the world, uh, performing the same operation on somebody. When I called him in an emergency and I said, doctor, what's going on? He says, your brain is rewiring itself. So this stopped happening. And my aneurysms never happened because he he stopped them and my brain has has bypassed them. So, so I'm kind of like a medical uh, pinwheel. I they shoot me wow. and I just see if it works. Is there some correlation, cause and effect between what's going on in your life and 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 getting MS? What I mean is, or is it just strictly a disease that has nothing to do with stress or? Else. That's you've hit on something, Grandpa, which is real. Um, the, my my the, the doctor who diagnosed me with multiple sclerosis was a doctor that had been in Miami for the whole time I was on the radio. So this doctor knew of my life. This doctor knew that on Friday morning I was on the radio at ten o'clock in the morning. That I was out on an appearance at seven o'clock at night at a club that I would go home at midnight and I'd be in a, I, they, they put me on a, 
the Carnival Cruise Line, the gambling thing on a Friday night, and I'd be back on the radio the next morning at six. The doctor knew wow. that I had been stressing myself out for years. So my doctor says, Mr. Curry, your problem is you can't shut your job off because when you're doing a four-hour radio show, you think about your job, the four hours you're on, but when you're not on the radio, all you're thinking about is the next radio show. And then when you're the program director of Power 96, not only are you thinking about your radio show, but you're thinking about all the other radio shows. And mm -hmm. so my doctor said, you have stressed yourself into this multiple sclerosis. MS is directly affected by stress. And you can actually stress yourself in to burning your brain out. And she believed from the very beginning that stress was a major factor in me finally. Remember, I was having exacerbations. But it all kicked in when I was at the at the height of my career, running the biggest radio station of my life, being at the Grammys every year and producing records. I had a boy band. Uh, Grandpa, you remember who Tom Jones is, don't you? The singing artist Tom Jones. I had a boy band in the 90s uh, and Tom Jones's illegitimate son was our lead singer. Now, how do I know he was illegitimate? Well, the case went in front of Judge Judy. So wow. there's this whole history of this case where Tom Jones was sued by this lady because he impregnated her. And this lady got this case in front of Judge Judy. And Judge Judy said, this is your son. I can tell by these numbers. But remember, these, these numbers, this DNA stuff is never exact. There's always a minuscule 99.999.911. Well, his attorneys took that point nine one one and said, well, there's still a possibility it's not his kid. So they lost the case. But the Judy said, from what I can see, this is your boy. So he was our lead singer in our boy band. So You, you mentioned the aneurysm. Is there any, is there a correlation between aneurysm and MS? You know, you would think that there is, but I can tell you that my doctors have never, ever mentioned that. These are two separate things. The aneurysm was something separate from the MS. I was wondering if an aneurysm could sometimes be caused by, by pressure from stress as well. Well, it probably did. Probably could have. Who knows? Let's see. Uh, you want to talk about your first book, Keep... Uh, when that's that's the first one. Wait, no, no, yeah, the first one. Mm, was it keep your mom? Keep. Oh, keep, come get me, keep, mother. Keep, I'm through. Come get me, mom. Yeah, come get. Yeah. Come get me, mother. I'm through. Now, okay, that's the name of my memoir. Come get me, mother. I'm through. The reason I named it that when I was on the radio I, at ten minutes before the end of my show, because I was Kid Curry was the nighttime DJ. My job was to attract the high school audience. Okay, so mm -hmm. I always. Five minutes before my show was over, I'd open up the phones and let kids just say whatever they wanted to say. And we I called it the bed check. And the kids would call in and rip on their school or maybe a classmate, tell a joke about their brother or something like that. And I would smart off to them and hang up and go to the next call. But when I was done with that, because it was Kid Curry, I would say, that's the end of the show. Come get me, mother. I'm through. And that's how I ended my show. My entire radio career was come get me, mother. I'm through. So here's an interesting fun fact. 
come get me, mother, comma, I'm through, is not grammatically correct. I, I do my memoir. It's released. It becomes number 11 on Amazon's uh, bestseller list. But then Grammarly appears. And every time I type <laughs> the name of my, my, my book into Grammarly, it says I've punctuated it incorrectly. So the book is called Come Get Me Mother, comma, I'm Through. But the correct grammar is Come Get Me, comma, Mother, I'm Through. Funny. And so there you go. Now you know I've misprinted I this bad grammar on the copy of my, on the cover of my book. You know what? I like it. It's quirky. Grammarly. It's funny. Yeah, how it is. Don't talk switch me. What's that? Uh, uh, what you say? Comes used, don't talk switch me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sierra, where are I'm, you? I'm here in the in the ether. I miss not <laughs> seeing you. You know what? You were late to jumping on, and I just said, you know what? Forget <laughs> it then. She was, yeah. She put her face away. Um, okay, let me see what else I got in here. Four kids, your birthday, your what are you, Aries? Uh, birthday no, on 420? Taurus. Taurus, even better. Yeah, I'm okay, on, good. I, don't, cusp, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm down to hear about your kids. You have four of them? Yeah, man. Okay, now check this out. Okay, now remember, yes. I was a radio DJ, okay? I was a pretty famous mm-hmm. radio DJ and you talk about groupies and all these, you know, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> two marriages were destroyed by my. Infant. Oh no. <laughs> I'm sorry. But you know, when your kid, don't get mad at me here. Now I've been married 22 years this time. I've found the right lady. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, but um, you know, when I was, a, I was a pretty famous guy. And when you're in Miami, you got to remember, man, it was the 1970s. That is okay? Miami. Wow. And, and, and remember that that when I first started there, Casey and the Sunshine Band was happening. George McRae. You had Eric Clapton doing 461 Ocean Boulevard. You had Criteria yeah. Studios. You had TK Studios. I mean, and Y100, this radio station I was on, if you were a student of radio, you know how important Y100 was even in the industry. It was a record-setting industry-type station. So I, unfortunately, girls really liked the nighttime DJ. And, you know, I tried to be good, but, you know, but I'm, I admit that I was not very straight in my brain for a long time. But you have to understand what multiple sclerosis or becoming uh, the patient of a chronic disease does to you. You realize all the terrible things you've done to people in your life and you start being better. And so I have fortunately, uh, I guess it was what, uh, 1999, I met the mm-hmm. woman of my life, uh, my wife, uh, Elizabeth, a Cuban girl who, as a matter of fact, I was at a club one night doing a live broadcast and I would walk around the club with a microphone. And every now and then I'd say, Power 96, this is Kid Curry. Come and get us at Mad Jack's. Come on by. We got free food and music all night long. Well, I'm in the VIP and this little girl, I, I say little girl because she's shorter than me, comes and sits next to me and starts talking to me. And I'm just sitting there holding my microphone. And so I was, hey, how are you? What's going on? She seemed like a nice lady. We had a couple conversations about the music that was playing. And then I, I got up. I said, goodbye. I got to get back to work. And I walked away. Well, when this little girl goes back to her friends, they're all like going, 
do you know who that was you were sitting next to? That was Kid Curry. And she was like, who? Well, the problem with that was simple. I was a fairly famous DJ in Miami for many years. I did TV commercials. I was the front. I, I, in fact, at one point, I was married to the only Cuban news anchor woman in, in Miami. So everybody knew me. But this girl, she never heard my name. And the reason was simple. She was a real radio listener. As a DJ, you hope that they're, you think that people are hanging on every word you have to say, but they don't. Real radio listeners want to hear music. So my whole life or my wife's whole life with me on the radio in Miami, as soon as I started talking, she pushed the button to find a new song because she didn't want to hear the DJ. Yeah. So that's, that's real, yeah. but that's what real radio listeners do. A minority of them pay attention to the DJ, but the DJ assumes that everybody's paying attention. But my wife wasn't paying attention and her not knowing who I was, was an asset because before that, I don't know if people really wanted to be with me to be me. They were yeah. they were dating Kid Curry. And this mm -hmm. lady didn't know who Kid Curry was. And that's why, you know, 22 years later, I still have the best relationship that I've ever had in my life. My wife Good. and I have a real Love strong thing going here. So, you know, but I was a dirtbag. I admit it. I'm sorry. What can I tell you? But you now, do? okay, but that, that means I've got I've got four kids. I've got uh, a baby mama. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got uh, three kids uh, with uh, one wife and one baby mama. And then my last child who's with us now is my wife's. This is our child. This is one we've, we've had, we had together. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, you say these things and you say, oh, I've had four kids and all these wives. But the thing that you don't know mm -hmm. is that I, I, you have to decide to make, to make peace. You have to decide your kids aren't going to get hurt by this. You have to decide this and you have to hold the relationship accordingly. So all my exes still talk to me. Uh, all my kids love me. And so, yeah, you can be a dirtbag, but you got to play the game. If you're going to be a dirtbag, you better be good to people. And I've always been good to everybody and everybody, uh, they're all, all okay with me. Nobody wants to shoot me. So I could be in a completely different situation, but, every, but yeah. everything worked out. Because I demanded yeah. in my life it was going to work out. So it seems well, uh, well worth it because of all the growth you can. I can tell. I mean, even if you were DJing all this other stuff, um, I you can just tell with your character that you've been through quite a, a, a good. You, you've learned, and at least I, at least I think, unless you're a good lion. <laughs> um, but uh, you seem like you, you know, you seem like a light. You know, it, it seems very yeah, good. Yeah, the growth is is evident. Well, yeah, it is. There to, it is. Thank you, Sierra. You have to realize that, um, you know, I've always just thought that you had to be good to people. I've always just thought that, you know, you can make mistakes, but turn around and be nice. And so everything worked out well for me in my life. Um, I'm very pleased. I, I have a wife who, um, and here's what, what has happened. This whole Kid Curry thing has shifted over. My wife was my date at the Grammys for years. But then when I got diagnosed... We had to kind of switch roles. We took all the money we had. We moved out to Colorado and started fixing and flipping houses. So after fixing and flipping three houses, my wife was disgusted in the way she was being treated by these realtors. And she said, you know, I can do this. 
So she went out and got her, her real estate license. And in this little town of Canyon City, Colorado, started breaking per capita records. In one year, she sold wow. 120 houses. And so, so my wife at that point really started getting into real estate. So eight years of that go by and the corporate office starts to pay attention to her success. So now she works for the corporate office as an international business coach. She has I love 40, that. actually more than 40 different clients that she speaks to every day. Oh, actually, she speaks to all of them, all 40 of them, one time a week. She spends a half an hour on the line talking about uh, profit loss, uh, hiring practices of uh, the future, what you should do in the pandemic, what you should do in the uh, in uh, with inflation, uh, what you should do in the recession. My wife has become a business genius. And otherwise, I wouldn't be living on a 10 acre horse property <laughs> because there's nothing like that I ever thought of in my life. But we're here wow. because of my wife. My wife is is she has become what. We never thought, well, when I married her, she'd already worked in a family law office and was working for financiers. So I knew she was smart, but until she got put in the, in, in this particular situation, I always said she could be a bank manager, a bank president, but she's well exceeded that. She is, um, even on a COO of one company. So wow. this is all turned around. My wife is the star of the show. That's who I really need to have in here talking because she's, she, she has great stories and positive. I mean, because she's a coach, she's a, she's a business coach. We have positivity in the house that you wouldn't believe. So this is all as a full cycle. Good thing, you know, put her on the list yeah. of people to be on the show. Yeah. Well, everybody says that, but remember my wife works from seven in the morning till five in the afternoon with a oh, one half yeah. hour break because she's always on the phone talking to these clients. So mm -hmm. other people, I've even tried to get her to come on, but it, it's tough to stop her long enough to do something like this nah, because yeah. she does things. She, she's every day. She's got a screen full of people she's coaching. So, but uh, that's the real hero you. in this house is my wife. I have a question what was that, grandpa? You. Something you probably have no interest, had no interest in and might or might not know the answer. Do you know what type of microphone, what type of, a turntable you used when you were uh, acting as a basically a radio DJ. Okay, what the microphone Sen was what Sennheiser microphones. But now Sennheiser. here's what yeah. here's what we here's what happened. This is this is crazy, and it's only because of the people that I knew. My the guy that ran Y100 was named Bill Tanner, and Bill Tanner is now passed, but he's a legendary programmer in America in the seventies. He and KC of the Sunshine Band were very close personal friends. And KC would always record in this microphone. And one day, Bill says, I want that microphone on the radio station. So KC gave him this microphone that he used to sing into, and it was a Sennheiser. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Sennheiser, whatever the case may That's be. Correct. But it was an actual recording studio microphone that Casey used. And from that point on in my radio career, it's the only microphone we've ever used. We just buy new ones, the same thing. Every station I've ever worked for, I've always purchased that particular microphone because it was Casey's and it, it just sounded better than everything else. And as far as turntables. Makes top of the line. Top oh, it was, yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, and the technique products. Um, there are specific turntables made for radio stations and, and CD players and things like that. But uh, fortunately, the, the companies I worked for 
were always superior equipment companies and always had superior engineers. I was real lucky, very lucky. Let's see. Um, well, we're getting we're getting close to the end of the of the show, and um, I, I want to ask you: Do you have any advice for a person that has MS? I do. <laughs> Get my doctor's book. This will help you. The only other thing I can tell you is okay. is that like everybody has something. You have to decide mm -hmm. you're going to get through life. Um, I was shocked with my chronic disease diagnosis, and it took me years to figure it out and figure out what it was going to do to me. But you can't stop. You can't stop. And oftentimes I tell my wife that it could very well be that multiple sclerosis was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because this radio business that I was in that was very, very stressful, and there were things going on in that business that were probably things I needed to stay away from, including women, including guys who had, you know, briefcases full of money. I got out of that and started concentrating on my multiple sclerosis, and I really believe I'm a better person because of it. Uh, you know, I've had to figure out everything every day that I can do and how to be successful. And you just have to put that in as a mindset. And a lot of these things that, that I talk about here, guys, I'm going to throw out my website if it's okay, krcurry.com. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of stuff I talk about, everything that I that you see in my books, uh, you can get a hold of at krcurry.com. Um, I, I do other podcasts. In fact, when you guys decide to put this up, let me know and uh, send me a link and I'll put it on my website too to help you promote it. Uh, because I do that. I've done a bunch of other ones. And I, I blog. I write about things. But I try to be as positive as I possibly can. I actually go uh, online with the men over 50 with multiple sclerosis group. Uh, and I see a lot of people. The reason I've got such a great life is because of my partner, my wife. I know guys who are as sick as I am who don't have anyone. So it's a very terrible thing that this MS is. And like I said, everybody has something and it's better if you have the right partner. And in my particular case, I'm, I'm really lucky to have the wife that I have. Well, we, we're lucky because we have a very capable producer, Sierra, and uh, a really nice and smart guy, finest to, Run this helps run this show. So, and uh, you've been very interesting guy to listen to. I'm been very interested in what you're talking about because, as I mentioned, my uh, nephew has this uh, this condition, and I want to, you know, pass on to him some of the information that you've given. Please do. Oh, yeah. If there's ever anything, if you need any information from me, if you'd like a copy of this book, get back to me, and I'll make sure you get a copy. But, gentlemen, I've had a great time today. Sierra, I haven't yeah. seen you, but it's been nice talking to you, too. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about your life and the journey that you've had through all of this. Well, yeah. I try to bring positive stuff, and if I can do anything to help people, uh, it's a good thing. And I appreciate you taking the time for me today. Absolutely. You'll be able to look in the show notes and in the transcript and find Kim Curry's information so, you know, give him some follows and check out some of his mm -hmm. literature. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Finest, Grandpa Bart, thank you for coming on. Even though you just came back from a big, long trip, we appreciate it. 
our beautiful mm-hmm. listeners, mm-hmm. you know, like and subscribe, smash the like button, favorite it. Do they still rate podcasts? Do that. And yeah, they do it. Five stars. And I'll be I'll do my best Brandon impression and say, and grandpa, I love you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good night, everybody. Good night. Podcasting with Grandpa Bart and Rosie, always on his shoulder. This is Grandpa and Chill. Grandpa and Chill is brought to you by your hosts, Brandon Fox, Bart Frank, and Finus Jackson. Our producer is Sierra Doss. To watch and listen to full episodes of the show and follow us on social media, visit grandpaandchill.com. That's grandpa, A-N-D, chill.com.